Section 4 of The Reign of Queen Anne, Volume 2 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 24 Bolingbroke at His Zenith. Bolingbroke had now reached the highest point of his political career. We may assume that the strongest ambition of that mind, which held so many ambitions, was success in the great game of politics. He now divided with Harley the actual business of ruling the state, and it cannot be questioned that he entertained high hopes and occupied himself with secret plans for becoming the one ruling power under the queen herself. Nature had endowed him with a genius for success in more than one field of conquest. He aspired to be a great writer, and he believed himself to be a great thinker. He had a thirst for social success and loved to be regarded as a star in the artistic firmament. He delighted in the consciousness that he was looked up to by men, and he was proud of his triumphs over the affections of women. He could not endure the thought of playing a secondary part in any game, and philosopher as he professed to be, we cannot picture him to ourselves as a contemplative observer of life in any field of action, or as content to study the movements of others in such a field without a passionate desire to show that he could do better than all the rest. It could hardly be said that he loved political life or philosophy, or literature, or art for its own sake. Each department of man's intellectual power seemed to him, according to the mood he was in, a sphere in which to assert his supremacy. We are often told by serious writers, and in obedience to their teachings we sometimes try to believe, that modesty is the usual accompaniment of genius the reading of great biographies and indeed one's ordinary observation of life might make us feel well assured that there are many cases in which the highest intellectual faculties are found in companionship with a supreme self-conceit this companionship is nowhere more strikingly displayed than in the life of bolingbroke had his intellectual powers been even a little less great than they really were he might never have risen above the level of the brilliant and clever amateur who loves to amuse his mind in various departments of study and work, who never distinguishes clearly between work and pastime, and who makes essay at too many crafts to become master of any one. Bolingbroke's splendid and genuine gifts saved him from such a fate as this, but great as was the success he achieved as a statesman and a writer, it is easy to see that a certain lack of sincerity in politics, as well as in thought, prevented him from rendering at any time full justice to his own intellectual capabilities. As a statesman, he seems to have been absolutely without any guiding principle, and his efforts to be a great thinker brought him to no higher place than that of a brilliant but an easy skeptic. One of Bolingbroke's biographers, Mr. Thomas McKnight, observes that his life abounds in vicissitudes, there are great changes of scene and fortune, 
he was born with great intellectual endowments and also with the strongest passions, and it is assuredly a curious and interesting study to observe their effects through the eventful times in which his lot was cast. His character assumes by turns many varying and apparently contradictory phases, and yet, when carefully analyzed, it appears peculiarly consistent and uniform as a whole, working toward a definite, if not a very satisfactory, end. The consistency, as it seems to us, is to be found in the fact that Bolingbroke followed through his whole career the light of his own instincts and of his own genius, and seemed to regard the whole course of living history merely as a path for him to tread toward the satisfaction of his own personal ambition. Other consistency than this, it would be hardly possible to discern in his strange and varied life. Why was it, Mr. McKnight asks, that in action as well as in speculation a man so gifted as Bolingbroke was so completely unsuccessful? Why was it that his life was but a series of defeats? The closing sentence of this able and interesting biography answers very frankly the question proposed in the preface. The life of Bolingbroke, that sentence tells us, will not be without a memorable moral, full of warning to the most brilliant and ambitious, if it show that even great intellectual endowments, high rank, and the finest opportunities are not in themselves sufficient to constitute and enduring political success, but that all these qualifications, without some earnest and steadfast faith in a great cause as the representative of a great principle, without something which can be said to take a man out of his narrow individual selfishness and make him zealously uphold what he believes to be the best interests of his country and of mankind, cannot always avert mortification and defeat from their possessor, nor secure the lasting respect and approbation of the world. At the time which we have now reached, Bolingbroke may fairly be assumed to have got the conviction satisfactorily into his mind that he had found his place at last, and that the great work of his life lay all before him. No man ever enjoyed more thoroughly or was better fitted by intellectual qualities to undertake a political and especially a parliamentary career. The great art of parliamentary debate had only just begun to be recognized as a leading power in the movements of public life at the time when Bolingbroke began to prove his capacity for leadership in the contests of eloquence. He had now, while still only in the prime of his days, risen to a position in the state which even in the case of men with gifts hardly inferior to his own, is commonly the reward of a career drawing toward its close. He had a marvelous capacity for hard work and found a positive delight in the mere official labor which to so many eloquent debaters seems a wearisome and exhausting tax upon the nerves and the physical endurance. Not that Bolingbroke was in the habit of admitting that he took any delight in the exceptional work and responsibility put upon him while Harley was still recovering from the effects of his wound. He seemed, in fact, rather inclined to make the very most of the especial trouble thus imposed upon him, 
and sometimes amused his friends, and in particular those who believed they thoroughly understood him, by his frequent complaints concerning the work he had to get through and the official burdens he had to bear. Swift, for one, felt sure that he could see the real meaning of these complaints, which were not characteristic of Bolingbroke, and took it for granted that an inherent dislike to Harley was the chief inspiration of the dissatisfaction expressed so often in Bolingbroke's looks and words. It is quite certain that up to the time when Bolingbroke obtained his peerage, and especially during the considerable interval which followed after Harley had been removed to the House of Lords, the whole work of leadership in the House of Commons became Bolingbroke's duty. Never was any man in the history of the English Parliament better fitted for such a position and for such work. Harley had been a very skillful parliamentary leader. He was one of the men whom we have read of or observed in political life, who without conspicuous abilities or commanding intellect have a certain art, or perhaps it should rather be called a certain knack for the management of parties, and who are able to acquire much influence and even a certain degree of fame by personal skill in their ways of getting round all kinds of men, suiting themselves to various tempers and temperaments, smoothing away difficulties, and making things easy all around. But Bolingbroke was born with a positive genius for parliamentary debate. He was a great orator, and his oratory was especially of that order which suits itself to the atmosphere of the House of Commons. In the boldest and loftiest flights of his eloquence, there was always a strain of sustained argument. There was always an appeal to the practical and business-like intelligence and habits of his audience, and even when he became most thrilling and most impassioned, his appeal never went wholly over the heads of his listeners, never soared beyond the level of their intellects, their purposes, and their sympathies. This is, of course, an essential condition of all true oratory, of all oratory which has for its purpose to touch the brains and the hearts of men. But it is especially true of that which we recognize as the highest order of parliamentary eloquence. We know that some at least of the greatest orators who ever addressed the House of Commons, let us take Edmund Burke as an example, have acquired their highest fame by the judgment of those outside the House itself, or of those who, belonging to the House, were at the pains of studying the great speeches as recorded works, but that their best efforts sometimes failed in their immediate effect upon the assembly which they were intended to persuade and command. Bolingbroke did not, like Byron's Merino Faliero, speak to time and to eternity, not to man. Bolingbroke spoke to man, to convince him, to captivate him, to master him, and his characteristic gift was all his own when he spoke to man in the House of Commons. Harley had nothing whatever of the orator's gifts. He had no imagination. He had no passion. He had no grace or beauty of style. He possessed neither wit nor humor. 
we all remember what was said about a once famous english lord chancellor that no man could ever have been so wise as thurlow looked something of the same kind might fairly have been said about harley and harley had at all events a better private reputation than thurlow possessed but harley's highest skill lay in his capacity for passing himself off as a wise and a profound man and for contriving to make other men believe that it would be for their own advantage if they were to listen to his persuasions and to accept his leadership at his own estimate of its worth. Bolingbroke, on the other hand, had the way of sometimes making himself appear less genial and also less earnest than he really was, and it was perhaps owing to that peculiarity in him that Swift and others did not believe that he really disliked the hard work imposed upon him quite as much as he said, and became convinced that he really enjoyed the work to the full and only grumbled at it because it gave him an opportunity of showing indirectly his dissatisfaction with his friend and colleague Harley. Bolingbroke has often been compared with Alcibiades, and there is much of aptitude and justice in the comparison. There was a distinct dash of the frivolous and also of the theatric mingled with the stronger, more earnest, and more commanding qualities of his temperament and genius. When he came to conduct the business affairs of his office, nobody could be more careful, more methodical, or more precise. There was no chance while he was at the head of a department that important letters or state papers would be left lying about so that clerks in the office might be free to study their contents or to make copies of them if they felt thus inclined. Many of the important letters and dispatches which had came within Bolingbroke's province to issue, he actually wrote out with his own hand, in order that he alone among the officials of his department might know what they contained until the proper time should arrive for making them public. As a matter of course, it often happened that he desired to obtain an exact copy of one of these important papers, and in such cases he not merely wrote out the document with his own hand, but he was also careful to copy it with his own hand. Bolingbroke wrote and spoke French with fluency and accuracy, an accomplishment not very common among the English statesmen of his time, and in many of his dealings with foreign ministers he was able to make use of the language which was then much more familiar than English in all parts of the continent. So earnest was he for a thorough understanding of all the political affairs with which he had to deal, that during the diplomatic negotiations concerning the succession to the Spanish throne, he studied with intense care the language of Spain, in order that he might be able to read for himself all state papers, letters, and other documents written in Spanish. One cannot help recalling the story told so often about Harley's urgent advice to a seeker after some office at the Prime Minister's disposal, the advice to learn the Spanish language, and of the blank disappointment felt by the office-seeker when, being able to return to the minister and announce that he had made himself well acquainted with Spanish, he was informed that he had now gained the immense advantage of being able to read Don Quixote in the original. 
we may take it for granted without any biographical information on the subject that when Bolingbroke had made himself acquainted with Spanish, he did not fail to read in the original Spain's greatest literary masterpiece. Bolingbroke loved literature of all kinds, and during his intervals of retirement, short or long, from official and parliamentary life, he devoted himself with equal eagerness to the study of books, to the delight of field sports, and the life of the country. He was a keen sportsman, he was fond of indulging himself now and again in the work of gardening, he loved trees, he loved flowers, and turned with zest every now and then to a close study of botany. Perhaps a certain amount of harmless vanity entered into the zeal with which he gave himself up to all these various pursuits. It pleased him when he was staying at his country seat near Windsor to think that the resident gentry admired his bold riding, that the local gardeners felt a profound respect for his knowledge of flowers and plants and trees, and that he was looked up to by the village farmers as a landlord who knew something about a farm. The fact was that at all times his natural inclination was to make himself the master of any work which he had to undertake, and of every official department in which he had to serve. No man of his time, not even Marlborough himself, made a more attractive and fascinating figure in society and in life generally than Bolingbroke. He was singularly handsome and graceful, picturesque in his appearance and in all his movements, winning and charming in his manners. He was all the more attractive as a companion because, while he had ever the courtesy and the dignity of what would then have been called a fine gentleman, there seemed to be nothing artificial or made up about him. He was not one of the fine gentlemen whose urbanity seems to be deliberately assumed as the bearing proper to his rank, the sort of studied and formal dignity which keeps all but intimates at a distance. On the contrary, there was a good deal of impetuosity about his manners. He was free to show that he had a temper of his own. He could enter with heat into a heated argument, and could sometimes meet opposition of opinion with a very blunt contradiction. All this made him the more captivating, not merely to his intimate friends and companions, but even and perhaps especially to his inferiors in rank. Some of these latter felt it a positive honor when a man of such position treated them so like equals as to condescend to sharp disputes with them, and he won on them by what seemed to be the ingenious and unrestrained impetuosity of his nature. A great man is never so charming to his inferiors as when he lifts them in that sense to his own level by showing that he wishes them to see him exactly as he is and conceals his real feelings behind no mask of conventional dignity. Bolingbroke had two great weaknesses, his love of wine and his love of women. The love of wine he carried to an excess even for those hard-drinking days. He delighted in revels and orgies of all kinds, and it seemed at one time as if no excess in drinking could interfere seriously with his work as a statesman and a political leader. He would slave in his office or in the House of Commons all day, then spend the whole night in carousing with his companions and present himself at the customary hour next morning to all appearance, 
ready for a full day's work. He delighted to entangle himself in all manner of amours, and although his first wife was a gifted and charming woman, completely devoted to him, he was ready to fall in with every opportunity of illicit intrigue that came in his way, or even to go far out of his way in quest of such an opportunity. He could make love to a fine lady of the court if the chance offered, and he could with equal zest devote himself for the hour to the captivation of some little milliner or some woman of a still lower order. Swift tells us in one of his letters that he sometimes left Bolingbroke's supper parties at a rather early hour because he could not permit swearing or blasphemy or indecent talk in his presence, and he did not wish to put too long a restraint upon the light-hearted company. For a long time, Bolingbroke and Swift were close associates and friends, and Swift was constantly to be found at Bolingbroke's residence in town or in country. There was, so far as one can judge, a great inherent difference between the natures and the temperaments of the two men. Swift had depths of feeling which did not belong to the brighter and lighter mental constitution of Bolingbroke. Swift was never more profoundly in earnest than when he talked or wrote in a vein of levity or satire. Bolingbroke had a vein of levity running through all his most eager and earnest efforts at the mastery of any subject or of any set of men coming within the range of his ambition for conquest. Swift was a philosopher even in his jest. Bolingbroke was something of a jester, or at least of a trifler, even in his philosophy. But the two men were close companions about the time which we are now describing, and those may well be envied who had frequent opportunities of listening to the unrestrained interchange of ideas between Bolingbroke and Swift. Bolingbroke was still in the early prime of life when he had thus reached what may be called the zenith of his career. His most devoted admirers might well deny that this highest reach of his political career is to be regarded as the highest measure of his fame. The works on which his reputation as a man of letters and a thinker must mainly rest were not accomplished by him until a much later period of his life, when his work in active politics was done but at the time when he had become one of the two leading men in the government of Queen Anne and was proposing to himself to become the one leading man in that government, he was still comparatively young. He was born of a good old family in 1678 at Battersea, that low-lying region south of the Thames where his grave was afterwards to be made, and where there are still many memories and even some enduring memorials of his life and fame. He was educated at Eton and traveled a good deal on the continent in his youth. In those days it was a natural event in the life of a young man who came of an influential family and had powerful friends that he should find a seat in the House of Commons. Bolingbroke entered Parliament in 1701 as a member of the Tory party, and he soon made it evident that he was a born master of the art of parliamentary eloquence. It is not too much to say that Bolingbroke was one of England's greatest parliamentary orators, that his name deserves to be classed with the names of the two pits of Fox, Canning, and Gladstone. 
he became prominent in political life at a time when the principles of Whig and Tory were getting to be somewhat undefined in their character, or at all events in their application to the practical business of a statesman's career. Bolingbroke was not by any means a man to regulate his life too strictly by the tenets of a creed which was already getting to be somewhat out of fashion. The queen on her throne saw herself compelled by the duties of her constitutional position to put up from time to time not only with Whig ministers but even with Whig doctrines. It is not surprising that a man of Bolingbroke's personal ambition, energy, and capacity for onward movement should find himself often compelled for the sake of his own career to make his devotion to the principle of Toryism a sort of private worship and in the active business of life to make use whenever he could of Whig men and even of Whig measures. In this, indeed, he was not different from Marlborough, but Marlborough, if he had been so inclined, could always have pleaded that he was a soldier, that his work in life was the business of war, and that he had only to do his duty as a commander, whatever might be the ministry or the policy which had sent him into the field. Bolingbroke and Marlborough were close friends for a long time, and there must have been something peculiarly attractive to each man in the leading personal qualities of the other. Of Bolingbroke it may justly be said that even to those who study his life and his works at this comparatively remote distance of time, he always seems most attractive, not as a statesman, not as an orator, not as a writer, but as an individual, as a personality. When we think of many or most other great men, we think of them chiefly for what they actually did. But when Bolingbroke comes to mind, we are apt to think first of all of the man himself, of his individual character, of the personal force which he became in the world of his day. We can easily trace this influence animating some of the writers who have devoted themselves to what they believe to be his complete vindication. Some of them, however, acute and impartial in their judgment on other subjects, are evidently carried away by the fascination of the man. They cease to be critics and become devotees. They are not satisfied with claiming the fullest allowance for the political errors, inconsistencies, and wrongdoings of their hero, but set themselves to make out that he was always consistent and always right, that he was consistent when at one moment he acted on a principle, which he had denounced a short time before, that he was right when he avowed one doctrine and acted on a doctrine which was distinctly its antagonist, that in every step he took and in every measure he pressed forward he was actuated solely by the most unselfish purpose and never was swayed by the impulses of his personal ambition. It is not necessary to Bolingbroke's fame or to our recognition of his noblest qualities that we should thus endeavor to set him up as that which he never claimed to be, a perfect model of political straightforwardness, sincerity, and virtue. A man gifted with such rare gifts and tried by such strong temptations, as Macaulay said of Byron, may well be excused, as human nature goes, if he sometimes strays from the direct path and sometimes mistakes the promptings of his own ambition for the dictates of patriotic inspiration. 
we shall see that Bolingbroke at the time which we have now reached was already well inclined to make small account of his friendship with Marlborough. Bolingbroke had undoubtedly sound and statesmanlike reasons for desiring that the war should come to an end, and that peace should be obtained on the best terms available for England under all the conditions. He saw, however, that Marlborough, as the soldier in command of England's forces, was not likely to regard the best means of bringing the war to an end from the same point of view as that which a Tory statesman of somewhat light principles and a sceptical turn of mind might adopt. Marlborough, as we have shown already, was, like many another great soldier, no lover of war for war's own sake. But Marlborough could not help believing that the honor and even the safety of England must depend to a great extent on her capacity to dictate the terms of peace. He was convinced that it only needed a bold and spirited forward movement to make it clear to France that England was in this position, and that France must take the terms she offered or accept still more humiliating conditions within the fortresses of Paris. Bolingbroke therefore made up his mind that Marlborough would be an impediment in the way of the negotiations for peace which were just then coming into action, and that these negotiations must be conducted without any knowledge of them coming to the ears of Marlborough until Marlborough could no longer have any chance of interfering with their progress. Bolingbroke had long seen that the feeling of Queen Anne was turning entirely against Marlborough. It may be questioned whether at any time the Queen felt personally drawn into cordial liking for her greatest soldier. At the opening of her reign, she had always regarded Marlborough as a Tory, and for this reason was inclined to accept him with a certain degree of sympathy and confidence. But it soon became clear to her that Marlborough was quite ready to put his Tory principles aside when they appeared likely to affect his dealings with Whigs, whom it was important to conciliate for the purpose of carrying on the special work which was under his direction. Anne herself had to put up with the Whigs while they were strong enough to make it necessary for her to consult them in the administration of state policy, but she did not on that account make any greater allowance for the political flexibility of Marlborough. Probably she had intellectual acuteness to see that Marlborough had really no deep-founded political principles, and she would have preferred a man who could sometimes put aside sincere principles for present expediency to a man who had no principles at all. As time went on, it became more and more evident to those around her that the Queen was growing colder and colder in her bearing toward Marlborough, and this could be seen plainly enough, even before the events came about which put an end to the rule of Marlborough's wife. Bolingbroke was not a man who could fail to observe the Queen's growing dislike to Marlborough, and he was not a man likely in the least to allow any feelings of former friendship to interfere with the promotion of his own career. The coming events were already casting their shadows before, and Bolingbroke soon saw that nothing was to be gained for him by adherence to Marlborough's side or by any regard for Marlborough's feelings. At the time, therefore, when definite negotiations for peace began to be in preparation, he did not feel the slightest hesitation or scruple in playing out his own part without taking Marlborough into counsel, in acting as if Marlborough were not in existence. 
there is not the slightest reason to believe that he really harbored any feeling of dislike to Marlborough, as he did toward Harley, but Marlborough seemed just then the man of all others most likely to stand in the way of the projects which Bolingbroke had at heart, and there was nothing for it but to put Marlborough out of consideration. Bolingbroke was not a man to cherish deep dislikes. Somewhat too much has been made by many writers of what is supposed to have been his implacable hatred for Harley. There is ample evidence, and evidence beyond dispute, that Bolingbroke felt deeply hurt by the priority of promotion given to Harley, and that he never concealed his feelings on the subject when among his intimate friends. In such companionship, Bolingbroke was never done with disparaging Harley, satirizing him, and making merry over his many oddities and weaknesses. There can be no doubt whatever that Bolingbroke's mind was set upon obtaining for himself the highest position in the Queen's confidence and in the administration of state affairs. The desire to be the first in every path of success was a passion ingrained in Bolingbroke's nature, and he may be fairly excused if he failed to see in Harley a man really qualified to be his rival in a struggle for political supremacy. Even if the two men had never been brought into rivalry, there was much in Harley which could not but have excited the ridicule and contempt of such a man as Bolingbroke. Harley's ponderous pedantries, his solemn affectation of profundity and wisdom, his narrow-mindedness, his transparent egotism, and his utter incapacity for following out any great purpose must have been in any case intolerable to a temper and an intellect like those of Bolingbroke. But there seems no reason to accuse Bolingbroke of any deep-seated dislike to Harley or indeed of any feeling toward him beyond the idea that he was a pretentious and absurd sort of person, who just then stood in the way and ought to be got out of the way by some process or other as soon as possible. Bolingbroke was capable of strong likings and even of lasting friendships, where the accomplishment of his own work and the success of his own career did not seem to be endangered in any way by such sentiments and such associations, and he was not one of those whom Dr. Johnson could have commended as good haters. Charles James Fox once said of himself that he never could be much of a hater, and in the better part of Bolingbroke's character as well as in his parliamentary gifts there was much which seems to have a certain kinship with the nature and the genius of Fox. At the present moment, the two men who stood most in Bolingbroke's way were Harley and Marlborough, and the degree of liking or disliking he may have felt toward either would not have materially affected the course which he was ready to pursue. In the political history of Queen Anne's reign, the two greatest names by far were those of Marlborough and Bolingbroke. Each man was without a rival in his own field, there was no soldier like Marlborough, there was no parliamentary orator like Bolingbroke. Each man alike was wanting in that steadfast consistency of purpose which is only to be found in alliance with the most unselfish and exalted nature, and with profound conscientiousness. But there was an underlying levity in the temperament of Bolingbroke which had no place in the character of Marlborough. Bolingbroke gives one the impression of a man of genius who found delight in the contemplation of himself during his performance of some great artistic part in considering 
how this or that accomplishment or achievement became him, and in congratulating himself on his success in winning the world's admiration for each particular performance. When Marlborough, on the other hand, had a great part to play, he felt nothing but the determination to play it to the very best of his ability, and never seems to have asked himself whether the world was likely to admire him more on this day and on this field than on any day or field which had seen his success before. Although he had come to be one of the two leaders of the government, Bolingbroke soon began to find that he was not growing much in the favor of the Queen. To Bolingbroke, who was content with nothing but complete success in every attempt, the comparatively distant terms at which he was kept by the Queen proved very hard to bear. He became possessed with the opinion, and had probably good reason for entertaining it, that the Queen believed him to be in too close and friendly an alliance with Marlborough, whom she had now come to regard with distrust and dislike. Then there came the utter failure of the Quebec expedition, a project which had had its origin in Bolingbroke's own active and adventurous brain. His idea had been nothing less than a scheme which was to accomplish the clearing out of the French altogether from the North American continent and the securing to England undisputed possession of the whole American territory. One of his ambitions was to distinguish himself as a great and triumphant war minister, and some of those around him had reason to believe that he felt confident not only in the success of the scheme, but convinced that it would give him a fame in history surpassing anything that had been achieved by the victories of Marlborough on the European continent. Thus there came up in his mind a sentiment of rivalry between himself and Marlborough, and it probably seemed to him that the success of his enterprise would make him the most important man in the state and give him the first place in the regard and confidence of the Queen. Even the very arrangements for the expedition he appears to have thought of turning to account with the view of ingratiating himself in the royal favor by the process of conciliating the royal favorite. He put all the land forces destined for the expedition under the command of Brigadier Hill, Mrs. Masham's brother, and he wrote a letter to Brigadier Hill urging him in fervent words to make the most of the great opportunity given him and to pursue with vigor an undertaking wherein the honor of our mistress and the most durable advantages to our country are concerned. The expedition, as we have told already, proved an absolute failure. Much as the failure must have discouraged and disheartened Bolingbroke at first, it only, after a while, served to turn his thoughts to the necessity of some other enterprise which might prove beyond doubt his capacity for conducting the affairs of state. This time his thoughts turned rather in the direction of an accomplished peace than of a successful war. His great object was to come to some terms with France, whether with or without the full approval of the Allies, which should put an end to the whole struggle and open a new field for the genius of a great statesman at home. Under these conditions, the preliminary arrangements for peace were begun without any knowledge on the part of Marlborough. The great soldier was still conducting his active campaigning work on the continent, 
and for a time knew nothing whatever of the arrangements that were going on to bring the whole struggle to a sudden close. Up to this time, Marlborough had been not only the soldier in command of the Queen's forces, the general who was authorized to conduct the whole of the military operations which belonged to the work of the Allies, but also the statesman, diplomatist, and envoy who was endowed with chief control of all negotiations and all arrangements. Now, on a sudden, Marlborough found himself quietly left out of the whole business, put aside and reduced to a powerless condition, while arrangements of which he had never been allowed to know anything were being carried on by the administrators or the administrator at home. The temptation had proved too much for Bolingbroke, and Marlborough soon understood, but too well, that he was sacrificed to the ambition of the man who had hitherto professed the most sincere admiration and loyal friendship for him. Bolingbroke and Marlborough had now to go their different ways. End of section four.